Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the 500th FYP podcast. That's right. And you'll have probably seen already on the uh, title of the pod, we've got a very special guest, the one and only Roy Hodgson is joining us today on the podcast, current Palace Manager. We've just recorded with him. We're going to get into it very quickly before I do that. Let's introduce, well, Steve Browitz here. Steve, how are you? Hello. Yeah, I'm I'm very well. Thank you. Thank you very much for hosting us again. Always a pleasure to have you here. We've Thank had you. a few uh, Palace uh, people over the years. We have. You've been a big part of the, mm-hmm. the pod down the years with our with our interviews that we've had here. Yeah, I mean, I, I used to listen to FYP um, pods, you know, when I was a, a humble junior <laughs> fan <laughs> uh, b- before we bought the club in 2010 and, and, and have carried on, obviously. We really appreciate it. Kevin's here. Kevin, how are you? Happy 500. Thank you very much. Happy 500 to you. It seems like only yesterday when I was in that hostage situation in your <laughs> Yeah. In your flat with Andy Street. Uh, and the only thing this is missing here, this brings back such happy memories being around uh, Steve's dining table. The only thing we're missing is James Endicott face down in a, in a, yeah. in a cake of some sort. He was <laughs> very drunk. Uh, was that with him? Jenna that? Hack. that was the, the was 2016 Cup yeah. final. Yeah. yeah. We do miss Enders. Although, um, to be fair, yeah. Steve, that was partly your fault the, yeah. because you provided a different vintage of wine for every year that we've been in the playoffs. Yes, I and had a little was, theme, and a little was a wine theme. theme. We'd been in the playoffs quite yeah. often, so we started off, as I recall, drinking it properly at your instructions, and by the end of it, we were necking it out of a teapot. This is a, <laughs> this is a very different episode, this one, with yeah. Roy here. Uh, yeah. Rob Sutherland's also here. Rob, how you doing? Hello, I'm hey, good, Rob. thank you. Um, I am, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased to have been a spectator for this interview, um, but also just to have been part of the FYP gang and to have witnessed the, the, the quality that... You and Andy and James and Kevin and everyone that's been involved has, has put out on a weekly basis. And I think 
as a fan myself of the podcast and someone who listens to the weekly one, um, it is just such a massive thing that you have done, JD, and that Andy did, and that, that Kevin and James as well. You both have created this kind of, you've all created this foundation that Palace fans can hold on to and listen to, and some stability in, in life. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of things that happen in, in everyone's daily lives, but knowing that the podcast is going to be there on a, one, a Tuesday or Wednesday is is a significant thing, and I think you really deserve a huge amount of credit. Absolutely. Yeah, that's very well, nice. thank well you. said. And also, a big shout out for our original sponsors, without whom we wouldn't be here. So, for all your embroidery needs, <laughs> <laughs> and and Mr. JC, yeah. I will. We should we should say that this interview series, which is a part of, is sponsored by our friends at Eternity Home Finance this season. They're a Croydon-based palace-supporting family-run mortgage and protection advisors. From getting on the property ladder to planning your retirement, email info at eternityhomefinance.com. And for a free consultation, quote the code FYP. Steve, we've just recorded with Roy, um, who gave us over an hour of his time, which is fantastic. Um, what a guy. What great. a guy Isn't he is. he great? He's, uh, I mean, he's such an intelligent man uh but but humble at the same time um you know with his huge experience and obvious intelligence he, he could be arrogant but he's not not in any way at all he's uh he's a really good man he, he's always got time for people if you if you introduce someone to him he remembers their name and he's charming and mm. um and uh you know obviously his football pedigree is, is incredible um and, and he's a Palace fan, so <laughs> born and bred in Croydon. Uh, he said some very nice things about the podcast at the end of the episode. He's presented us with a fantastic Palace shirt with FYP 500. And Kevin, really, this is, this is a bit of a coup, isn't it, for us, for getting someone of Roy's stature on the pod? We, we've flirted with the idea in the past of asking Roy to do it, but assumed that he probably wouldn't. And he said yes with some alacrity, which is great. I think because he understands the role he talked about. I love the fact that he makes a distinction between a fan and a supporter, yeah. which I think is really interesting. But from my point of view, as somebody here who's the closest in Easter, I mean, hearing him talk about football when he was a kid, even simple things like sharing a house with Steve Kemba. That's all. But also, it's a cliche, but he, he understands Palace. But he understands football at our level. He understands the difference between being a Chelsea fan, a Liverpool fan, supporter, and being a, a Palace supporter. And he, he understands quite clearly the role of the pod. And, and I'll echo, echo what Rob said at the start of the pod. You know, Palace has been an important part of my life since I was five, and the pod's been an important part of my life in the last 500 episodes. I, I've had some of the most joyful nights of my life recording this pod. Most and of them. And I'm, yeah, most of them. And I'm going to get emotional, but. You and Streety were kids when I first met you, basically, um, and I found your attention slightly sinister, I have to say. But I've, but, I, but just by coincidence, you've, you, you've, you've been monitoring the club probably from its lowest point mm. to currently its highest point. I mean, yeah. we wouldn't be here if it weren't for for Steve and other people like him. And we we were on the, we were on air. I remember the panic, the distress. And then the relief, and then the subsequent joy from Wembley, mm. and it's the, the pod's been a, that constant baseline ever since, and will continue to be so. And I think Roy makes a good point that these these are the glory days, these are the golden times, and you know, be careful what you wish for when it comes to pushing for you. Because for my generation of fan, 
mid-table in the Premier League, it's not sexy to a lot of people, but for us, being through what we've been through, older fans, it's, it's fantastic. And I love the fact that Roy understands that. I love the fact that you know some managers we've had in the past would have got a hump if we'd asked about Ray Lewington's shorts. <laughs> he just tells us a story that ends up with a man in Sweden in hospital, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is great. Uh, yeah, he, he, I, was, he was fantastic. Thanks as well for introducing me to new words. Alacrity, never heard of it. Going to use it all the time now. I, I really enjoyed the human element of what Roy said. And he, he's a people person and you can really tell that from his stories and the warmth that he has for people that he's worked with. He remembers names from his past, from yeah. the 70s, that helped to shape the career that he's had. And, the, you know, Steve talks about his humility and, and, and that really shines through. And, and when he talks about... It, it, it was interesting him talking about managing in Sweden and essentially changing the game. They, the footprint that he had there made such a difference that they, the Swedish national team still play to the standard that he kind of set. Yeah. So there was, I think there was a, it was during the 2020 tournament, uh, international tournament, what, that was Euros, wasn't it, I think, um, which he, where, where Sweden played, I think, Portugal. Or it was one of these, one of the, the, the major sides, and they played a low block. And I, I remember messaging with uh, Dom Fifield about it, and, and just saying, this is like watching Steve's Palace yeah. in terms of the way that we were playing. And Sweden won that game. You mean Roy's it, Palace? Roy's, sorry, yeah. It's uh, not sorry, Roy's yeah, yeah, no, no. It's um, at Roy's Palace. And, and, um, and, and, and you get that kind of... You, you, you understand the, the nature of the, the, the person that he is. Yeah. And, and the way he talks about fans, the way he talks about the players that he's worked with. And the, 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 it's love, really, that he has for the game and also the people that he's worked right. with. Beautifully said. I think that's a perfect place to go into... Uh, the interview with Roy. So this is, after a quick short break, uh, Roy Hodgson on the 500th episode of the FYP podcast. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. To celebrate our 500th episode, we're joined by one of the world's most recognisable managers. He's coached at two World Cups, three European Championships, he speaks five languages, and has managed some of the world's best ever players, including Ronaldo, Rooney, and Iberieze. It is, of course... (laughs) Roy Hodgson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Stu. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, as ever, when we have big name interviews, we're also enjoying the superb hospitality, and yes, I will leave a five-star review on TripAdvisor later, <laughs> um, of Steve Browett. Steve, how are you? Hi, yeah, I'm good, thank you. Fantastic. And Kevin's here too. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> Spent some time thinking about that one, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> Not even a welcome back. How are you? Well, how nice to celebrate the 500th edition with that traditional lack of welcome. JD, <laughs> I think that was the lack of welcome I got back on Channel 11. But also how nice it is for once not to be the elder statesman on a podcast. I'm really appreciating that role. We'll stay as close as we can to the present day, I think. <laughs> there'll be some younger listeners, I'm sure. Oh, wait till my question about Jim Cannon, though. <laughs> we got, Rob, we've got so many questions to ask you, and we really appreciate you being here. But first of all, it is the international break. What's that like as a, as a club manager? Sort of um, empty training grounds? Is it a chance to take a break? Or do you find it frustrating? Well, I don't find it frustrating because I'm, I'm in favour, if you like, of international football. I think it's a great honour for your players when they're selected for their national teams. And having worked with so many national teams myself, it would be wrong of me to start complaining that someone else has taken the players away for a short period of time. It does give you a chance as well to spend a bit more time with players who maybe haven't been 100% in, in focus, which, which is good. But it's the numbers that are a problem. Um, but that gives a chance, to be fair, to the, some of the players from the academy that we can bring over and give them a chance to train with other first-team players. So I think you can make quite a lot of it. And it also gives us that opportunity to, at least for the guys who are not playing international football, to give them a few extra days' break um, because we've got more than enough days to get the work that we need to get into them anyway. Um, and it's sometimes that's very good for foreign players because if we give them three days instead of the usual sort of two-day break, they can go home and see their mm -hmm. families. So there are positives. And on this occasion, we haven't lost quite so many players as on the previous one uh, because I'm 40 as they lost what I thought was going to be his spot too. To Cole Palmer, because he scored a, a good goal in the Chelsea game. Mm. But it's, it's, an, it's an indication of how much we've progressed, Roy, that in the past couple of seasons we've had so many players away during mm. the international break. Because sort of 10, 12 years ago, it just wasn't the case, was it? No, no, that's, that's true. Although we've always, had the, we've always had ones that go to the you know, further flung countries, mm. really. We've always had the Africans. And that's sometimes a bit of a problem because their matches are played as well, not in, in, in sometimes quite distant parts of Africa. So you might... You might be a Ghanaian like, like Jordan or some from Senegal like Kriate, but your game might be in some quite remote part of Africa. And it's always been a bit of a problem getting them back mm. because they sometimes have to travel quite a lot within their own country and then take a flight to Paris and then come from Paris. Mm. So instead of getting them back at the same time as you get your European ones, um, but now we've got more European ones, of course, largely thanks to the fact that I mentioned Eze, but, but also uh, Sam and um, uh, Mark Gay, them getting into the England setup mm. has made a, a big difference, I think, for them and even for us as a club because uh, you know, once you've got players playing in the real top international nations, it makes people sit up and take notice. You've got to go back a long way. I mean, I, I remember when um, Palace had Jeff Thomas... John Solarco and Ian Wright, all in the England team, and it was like, wow, mm. you know, we've Crystal Palace has arrived. We've got three players in England. I'm, I don't imagine Palace have ever had more than 
three in an England squad. When, when, I, first started, most. when I first started watching, we had Paddy Mulligan playing for the Republic, and that was yeah, about that was it. That was it. Yeah, and, and a few really excited if, about that, and a few Scotsmen who yeah. I don't think even made the Scottish team. It, it's an, it is an exciting time, isn't it, in terms of the players that Palace have and the, the caliber yeah. of them. Well, I think that certainly two years ago, when I when I left and thought I was leaving for good, actually, but when I left then. Um, I think the club invested very wisely. They spent a lot of money at that time, but they've invested it wisely in rejuvenating the team, which we always thought we, we needed for a number of years. But they didn't just rejuvenate the team, they brought very good quality players into the bargain. So I think that's that's given us a, a better chance these days than uh, uh, of staying in the league, first of all, and, and, and trying to get as high up the league as we possibly can. Kevin's got a question for you. We're going to go back a bit, if that's okay. Sure. Well, it's just like, because I, they, they do take the mickey out of me a little bit, Roy, for being of a different generation. But, you know, you, I don't think you're ever more obsessed with football than you are when you're nine or ten, when you first get into it. And that's the, it's, everything seems to be more colourful and vibrant then. But True. You, you went to a school that just produced legend after Palace legend, didn't you? <laughs> I mean, Steve Kember, Lenny Lawrence, you came yeah. Was there something in the water at that school? Or? I think... Legends kind, of course, but um, Steve Kemba really was the, the first one, I think, that really sort of made a real name for himself from the school in terms of playing because both Lenny and I didn't have that playing background and we got ours a bit later on through our coaching. There was another player, person there who became a very good coach, Bob Houghton, uh, another one. So there was it was a school, funnily enough, that did produce these people, but I think it was more more coincidence than anything else. For example, Steve Kemba, whom I grew up with when uh, we lived in the same house for several years before his father became a policeman and went to live in, in Balham, I think it was. So they moved out. So I would have been about nine or ten when Steve moved out. We'd been together for a good five or six years. Um, but then he came back, amazingly enough, and his father came back to, to the Croydon area, moved to Shirley, and... The school was in Shirley and Steve moved to Shirley. So I only saw Steve there for the last couple of years of my schooling. But Len was, Len was there all the time. Uh, and Bobby Houghton was there like Steve. He only came from a, uh, a secondary modern school down the road and in the sixth form came to, came to the grammar school. Did you think, when you were starting your playing career, did you think beyond that playing career, did you think even then that you were, the coaching was what you were heading towards, or, or was that something no. that as your playing career developed, you decided you were interested in? Yeah, was my playing career failed to develop, more <laughs> to the point, but I mean, I suppose the passion for football was there, the, the, the desire to be uh, a professional in, in the game and have only the game to think about, that that was always there, but I had to come to terms fairly early on, that well, that's not going to work for me in terms of playing, and luckily Bob Houghton was a very keen young coach at that time, we were very close friends, he pulled me along and we took this interest in coaching, partly because it was another another uh, string to our bow, but also it was a, another chance, you know, the coaching coaching sessions and coaching, uh, not just sessions, but the, you know, taking our badges, that was also playing football, we were going and taking our badges and being with other people and playing football, and then both of us decided we try to go into PE teaching because in England at that time probably still is you know being you want to be involved in football then PE teaching at school gives you a good chance because that's what 
we did in those days. You know, there wasn't the choice. It was football in the, in the winter and cricket in the summer. Mm. And if you like both of those sports, then PE teaching was not a bad place to be. But of course, for both of us, when the opportunity came to leave that side of it behind and go full-time into the actual coaching uh, work, we both decided very early on that we should give up our very mediocre playing careers to try and do something in coaching which might keep us actually in the game a bit longer as professionals. I was, I'm going to ask a question about Bob in a minute, but before I do that, I'm just going to go back a bit to, to watching Palace on the terraces with your father. Do you have any mem- many memories of that? Yeah, I think you do. I think sometimes the further you go back in time, the more vivid your memories are. We lived within walking distance and uh, there was a family four doors along from us. They they were friends, if you like, and my father. So uh, the six of us would walk along to the to the ground, which is about a 15-minute walk, and have the memories of that. I have the memories of sitting on the crossbar early on in Holmesdale Road, uh, uh, before the stand, of course, was built there. And, and also then, probably a little bit older, that was probably when I was about six. six. I think six was the first game. So around that time, it was the walking along and sitting on the crossbar. But as a few years went by, I, I changed that spot for being directly behind the goal, as close to the pitch as you can get, because occasionally the ball would come over and you got a chance to kick it back. <laughs> and also in those days as well, funny enough, you know, we're... It's not the Crystal Palace of today. And, you know, the people listening to this, they can't really imagine the, the crowd or lack of it. So what I used to do, I would change ends at half-time because you could just walk around. And that meant I was always behind the goal. Crystal Palace were attacking. Not that that meant I saw a lot of goals, <laughs> but I was, I was where any goals would be yeah. if they should come along. This was uh, third division south, wasn't it? And fourth division. And and, and yeah, I remember fourth, yeah. I remember very well that year when the, the third south and third north decided to to be combined. Yeah. Right. And the top twelve, I think it was, from each division, they would form division three, and the bottom twelve yeah. would be division four. And unfortunately, yeah. we came in the in the bottom twelve. So part of it was in the fourth division. Yeah. But some of the some of the crowds though. In those days, were normal. We had the top three fourth division crowds, really, because thirty three thousand against Millwall for a fourth division game. So the the big numbers would turn up in those days. I I mentioned earlier, a friend of mine went to coach in Switzerland. He says, whenever your name is mentioned, the imaginary uh, cap with a feather is doffed. (laughs) But you were you were a pioneer of of learning your trade abroad, going to coach abroad. Not many English coaches did that. Is that something you would actively encourage players and coaches to do now? Because we've seen Jude Bellingham, Harry Kane, but there was a long time in the 70s and 80s when English coaches and players weren't really encouraged to, to apply their trade elsewhere, were they? It's, um, it, it swung around, Kevin, that one, because when, when Bobby and I went out there, we went out there really on the recommendations of the Football Association because that was, that, that was where we had our grounding, that's where we'd been taught how to coach, and I've got enormous gratitude and respect for the education actually we were given. And at that time, we we replaced, to some extent, an, an older guard of English coaches, you know, much more famous than Bobby Howe and I, you know, Alan Ball and people of that, of that, of that nature who'd been out there, Alan Ball Senior, this is, yeah. people of that nature who'd gone out probably pretty much near the end of their coaching careers, but with a, a CV of having worked in... English clubs, 
But I think that, to some extent, they'd blotted their copybook on one or two occasions, and I think suddenly people were still quite keen on having an English coach, but they were thinking, well, can we think a bit younger? And then, of course, Bob Hout went out there, and for two years he absolutely revolutionised the place. He, um, he won the league in his first season, he did the double in his second season, uh, he changed the way the teams were playing because we went out there, I mean, I joined him, I went out in 79, he went there in 77. Um, but all the other teams were playing man-to-man, you know, they were playing very Germanic football because Germany were the top international yeah. team and Bayern Munich were the top European team. So they were all copying them to the nth degree and it was, it was very simple to analyse your opponents because you knew... Uh, this is how we're going to play, and this is how they'll deal with it. You knew who was going to mark that one, and you knew that behind that group of players would be what they called a libero or a sweeper. So that was, but of course we didn't play that way. We played pretty much an English system, which was pretty prevalent in England at that time, um, and it caused them problems. You know, having two centre forwards to mark caused them problems because they were used to marking one centre yeah. forward and two wingers, and that's what they did. So Bob swept the board there and. To be fair, it didn't have such a vast effect upon how people thought. They put it down to the fact that Melner had the best players because they did have some very good players. You know, they probably you know had players who formed the backbone of the national team. But of course, when when I came there and had success in in the next five years by winning it twice, but without that sort of players, you know, with a, a, a more Crystal Palace like. Aspect, if you like, no one could possibly look at Harmstead and say, "Well, they've got the best players. That's why they win." It was put down really to the fact that, well, the way that the team plays and the way it's organised is causing us problems. And I think that we are we are um, uh, credited both Bob and I with revolutionising the football that you've seen Sweden play over the yeah. last, you know, goodness knows how long. And it would be false modesty to say that's not true. We did. Uh, and of course, a lot of good coaches came in our in our wake. You know, Eriksson, Torbjörn, Torb Lars Lagerbeck, uh, mm. Roland Andersson, etc., etc. They they were not disciples. Well, in fact, some of them were um, uh, uh, disciple-like, and they also took on the wrath, if you like, of the Swedish Football Association, because they really just wanted to put down to only. English people can play this way and we don't particularly like it. We're going to continue going along in our Swedish way. But suddenly these people made it, now hold on, this is the Swedish way. This is what our players like to do. This is what we're good at. We're going to move away. Well, I had a player, for example, there was a spell in in 79 where we had two very good players, um, I thought, who were definitely uh, candidates and should have been the national team, but the national team coach wouldn't pick them all the time they played for Harmstad and played the way we played. Oh, wow. So that was, so it was quite a difficult time. But it's like everything else, you know, people, they don't really, for, they don't really forgive, you know, they, they, have a good, they have a good expression this week that, you know, when, when Satan grows old, he becomes religious. And that's, that's, <laughs> that's, what, that's, that's a little bit what, what happened there with regard to Bob and I. But it was a wonderful start to a a coaching career, I suppose, because both of us knew nothing but success for seven years for Bob and five for me. You and Bob, when you're out, it must be quite exciting. You must be thinking, we're doing something really exciting here. Yeah, I don't know, really. I mean, 
I think both of us were pretty realistic at that time. We realised the life of a professional football coach is probably a short one and that we need to take full advantage and, you know, enjoy it as much as we can and certainly be aware that it might not be something that's going to last us through to old age because we were both so young, you know. I was Bobby, Bobby was only 27 when he started and I was only 29 wow. or 28 stroke 29. So I think at the time we had a sort of an idea of, well, let's get to 40. If we can get 11 good years of this and really enjoy it, then maybe we can move on to something else. You know, we're not stupid and we're not going to be totally without work if we can't get a job as a football coach. But, you know, luckily both of us have seen it right through to the end. It's a bit like like me in the podcast. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But would you encourage, in terms of the English national team getting better, would you encourage English players to try and get experience abroad to make them better players technically? I I think anything that takes you out of a comfort zone, anything that puts you in a different environment... I'm not saying that you would necessarily move. If you're a top uh, player in, in the Premiership, you wouldn't move abroad to get necessarily better football. But you might get a different experience which will enrich your life and, and broaden your perspective in life. But it, that's not going to happen, unfortunately, because the money in football decides everything and the money's here. So, yes, Bellingham, sure, but, and, and Kane, but you're talking about two different extremes. Bellingham who was available, really, to be fair, at Birmingham. There wasn't one premiership club that didn't know Bellingham was there. But no-one wanted to pay the money or take the chance. But Dortmund did, Mm. so congratulations. And Kane, well, 30 years of age, end of a contract, do I carry on or do I go for something a little bit different? There's a big swathe of players in the middle of that that don't even need to think about it. But I would definitely suggest that, you know, players a bit further down who are, you know, struggling really, I suppose, to make even a good living if they got a chance. And I would definitely recommend it to some of the some of the younger players, the academy players. I've tried on several occasions, both at Fulham and at Palace, to encourage players maybe to go to somewhere like Sweden or to Norway or to Denmark or these type of countries to get... But it's hard to do so. They'd much rather go to Rochdale or Crew Alexander or clubs in this country. Yeah. Um, so I would recommend it largely on the basis of expanding your life and your experiences of becoming a more rounded person. And I think the more rounded person you are and the more experiences you've had, there's a chance it will make you a better footballer. Mm. Yeah, completely agree. Can I ask you about Bob Houghton really quickly? Because I've, mm. I've got a question here about it, who are your coaching influences? Mm. It sounds really like he really, really was. He was yeah. I think in your career as well, there's often people that pop up that sort of lend you a hand and help you sort of get on your way somewhere. And it sounds like he did that in a big way for you. Well, he did by first of all taking me with him to South Africa as a, as a player. Um, in England as a player, when Maidstone turned professional, we, we went to Maidstone together. So he took me in that respect. And then, of course, he went to Sweden while I was still in South Africa and then came back for a year here. And he was the one who recommended me for the job at Harmstead. We were very much contemporaries. Um, you know, we would, we would discuss football until the cows came home, really. And I certainly regarded myself as the, as the lesser of the two because he'd, he was already he'd been at Ipswich with Bobby Robson as a youth team coach, whereas I wasn't in that area at all. Um, and then when I went to Sweden, of course, we were very close during those five years, in fact, that I joined him back at Bristol City. 
So our, our contact was daily and our, our discussions, which carried on, were very, very important to me. So I, I, I would say that Bob would be the most important influence. Mike Kelly was around at that time as well. He was, he was a good influence as well, Mike Kelly. And then there's the people from the FA that were very good, not, not just Alan Wade and Charlie Hughes at the very top, but people like Ted Powell, who was a London regional coach, then Keith Blunt, perhaps even more so, Dario Grady, all London regional coaches. These were the guys, really, who put Bob and I on some sort of track. And once we got onto the track, we started doing OK. I mean, Bob went to a European Cup final. Mm. Um, so it didn't do much better than that. Um, in fact, I got a, a text from one of the players from that 79 team who also played in, in my team in 85, um, saying they're on their way down to Munich now for a reunion. Oh, wow. Because it's you know nearly 25 years or whatever it is. So we, we were lucky then when we got onto that track to meet some other very important coaches, I think, who just by having a chance to watch them and not just watch them but actually talk to them afterwards, which sometimes you don't get. If you, you, know, if you just walk in as a young coach, come out and watch you train, you might watch the training session. But to have the chance to actually talk to them and get to know them and you know, befriend in a certain way. So that's, that's when you know, Bob Robson, Don Howe and... Uh, <clears throat> uh, Dave Sexton really came into my life and then after that uh, Venables these are the people I think that I've always admired their work and uh, would like to think that I've been able to take something from those people um, but if I was to say well but who were the ones who got you going it wasn't these people because by the time I got to know them or got to see them or got to have some, some form of contact with them I was already six years into the job. Uh, obviously, Roy, we, we want to talk to you about Palace, but I, there's one general football question I'd like to ask you. What, when I first started going, you'd watch a centre-back like John Sewell or Jim Cannon or then Mickey Droy. You would never see them ping the sort of pass that you see Joachim making on a match-by-match a, a -match basis. Apart from goalkeeper, what's the position you think has changed most since you became mm. a coach? Because it seems to me that every single position yeah. is different now. Yes, it is. I mean, where you start, be goalkeepers, of course. I mean, but I mean, as you remember, it was a time when goalkeepers picked the ball up. Yeah, of course. So the first thing that stopped that was the rule where goalkeepers yeah. were allowed to pick the ball up. That made a massive difference. Yeah. Well, the first, my, the, the, my dad said football ended the day goalkeepers started wearing gloves. That, yeah. was it. that was it for him. John Jackson, John didn't, Jackson didn't yeah. wear gloves, I think. Yeah. Well, Peter Bonetti used to wear those gloves. But, I mean, you also had that, that time you had so many good goalkeepers as well, didn't you, in, in England? It's like John Jackson in any other generation would have played for England but couldn't get past Shorten and, and Clements, could yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I think goalkeeper is the obvious one, I suppose. Uh, uh, on the, since, since that rule changed, goalkeepers started to improve anyway. But now, in the last three or four years, we are really seeing them used as playmakers. Mm. Um, you know, they're, they're being used as that extra man. Because it's very difficult to press, press teams if the goalkeeper's good enough with the ball. Because all, all that happens, he just drags your players further forward and opens up spaces mm. behind you for people to play. So we're getting the stage now where goalkeepers are getting a bit more time, strangely enough, because people are working out, well, unless I've got a real good chance of getting there, I'm better off staying because as soon as I get anywhere near him, he'll just slip past me or pass the ball past me and we're going to be a man short. I think that 
another area that's changed is the one you've mentioned. But I remember Wenger at a meeting of the European Technical Study Group maybe 15 years ago, certainly 12 years ago, making that point, actually, in a, in a meeting where that question came up, what's going to change most, do we think, in the next, you know, 10 years, let's say. And he said centre-backs will start coming out with the ball. We'll, we'll, we'll use them. Whereas in the past, they've just been stoppers, really. Yeah, cool, you know, yeah. and only judged on their ability to stop goals being scored or maybe go at the other end and be a, a threat from set plays. They're going to actually start taking part in the games. I think I saw the, uh, some quote from Jack Charlton where he said he, he became a, a centre-back because he wasn't good at football, like his brother. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that's very modest of him, that. <laughs> I know what you mean. And then full-backs uh, have always overlapped. I mean, I remember overlapping footballs, full-backs in the, in the 50s and 60s, really. I mean, oh, really? certainly the 60s I worked with, a very, very good player in, in Sweden called Solander who ended up playing centre-back and midfield for me, but he started his career as an overlapping full-back. He was such a good quality player. So that was quite, you know, that, was, that wasn't unknown. But now we're seeing a, a different type of full-back play. We're seeing a lot of underlapping mm. so that people are making runs inside and not just outside of the winger. But also we're seeing them move into midfield. Quite a few teams now are trying to boost their midfield by putting a... Uh, a full-back who's got good quality or good composure on the ball is a good quality player on the ball and running the risk that we'll just keep the other three and hope they can do the defending for us if we lose lose the ball. I don't know what other big changes can be made. I mean, I suppose you could talk about centre-forwards in the same way we've talked about centre-backs. You know, every team in the past tend to have a a target playing mm. centre forward. You could have often two. You'd have your target player, and you've mentioned Andy Johnson, and he did that job very well for me at Fulham with Bobby Zamora, yeah, who was yeah. a, a target playing type centre. We, we're coming away from that a little bit as well. You know, you're seeing the Enketias of the world, you're seeing the Alvarezes of, of the world. The, you know, people really that in the past you would think, well, he's not centre forward material. Well, they are because they've got the quality to control balls played up to them. But, of course, what they can also do is they can make those runs behind, which are so important in, in, in the game. But I, I don't know where the next step will be. I think we've, if anything, it will revert a little bit more towards um, what we're used to because I think there's going to be a limit to the amount of possession football teams can play. I think the spectators themselves will get a bit fed up with just watching the team play the ball, yeah. centre-back, goalkeeper, centre-back, goalkeeper, full-back, goalkeeper. I think they'll get a bit fed up with it. And I don't know that we'll ever really encourage people to believe that we're a great team because we make 500 passes if 420 of those passes are nowhere near the opposition's goal. Yeah. So I think you might see a little bit of a change in that respect and a bit more pragmatism that if we're not going to be able to play out past this pressure that we're getting heaped upon us because the other team are so good at it and we keep losing the ball when we try to do it. You might see a bit more of a pragmatic approach that people, certainly from goal kicks at least, or from kicks near their goal, will start playing the ball forward a bit more. Once that happens, then of course there's going to be a bit more of a, a, a clamour 
for a centre forward who can actually hold the well, ball up and win a challenge. It, it's really strange. I've found recently that since they changed the rule that the ball doesn't have to leave the penalty area on goal kicks, it's almost like some teams think that's compulsory, mm. that it has to stay within the penalty area. Yeah. And you see teams, certainly Norwich were victims of this, you see teams who can't play out from the back, trying to play out from the back. It will burn you to exactly. an extent. I mean, who get they try and play out from the back and they're getting caught week after week by teams like us nicking the ball off them and, and That's scoring. a very good point, Kevin. And furthermore, we, I think we do get sucked into it. I think pragmatism is a, is a quality that people don't talk an awful lot about. You know, today you can only be regarded as a good team if you do what Man City and Arsenal yeah. are doing. But the problem is this might be quite a clever ploy from Man City and Arsenal's point of view because they can do it and they've got the players to do it. But they might be sucking you into doing it and then taking advantage of the fact they're going to steal the ball from you yeah. very close yeah. to your goal. So, yeah. the, you know, yeah, I think that that's starting to, that would change slightly, I think. And we'll get back to a little bit more balance. It won't just purely be um, 50 passes before you cross the halfway line. There might be a few. And that would change the type of players we're looking for. But otherwise, I think where we've moved to in the last, how many years? I, I can't tell. I lose track of the years, but where, where the game certainly is today, it's in a very, very good place, I think, in terms of providing entertainment for the fans because there's an awful lot of quality, technical quality, that wasn't mm. evident in my memory many years ago. And the pace and the intensity of the game, that seems to, seems to um, accelerate every year. It's quite interesting that after, I don't know, I don't know Vincent Company at all, really. I mean, I bumped into him on many an occasion when he was playing for Man City and said hello, but I don't know the man. But the interesting thing he said to me after the game a couple of weeks ago was that how, how much the Premier League has changed since he stopped playing. Wow. How much more intensive it is, how much faster it is, how much more technical it is. Now, What's that, four or five years? Yeah, yeah, not, yeah. Long, not long. Well, that's, quite, that's quite a testament, that. Yeah. You know, I see that, I think. We talk about it amongst the coaching staff. It gets harder every year um, to match the intensity, yeah. to, to, to match the technical level, to match the physical level, to match the running. Um, but it's good that someone like him can say it because he's actually been right in the middle of it yeah. and has won championships yeah. doing so. Yeah. Right, I could listen to you talk about football all day. That was genuinely really, really fascinating. But should we come on to, to Palace? Please, oh, to please. <laughs> but that, I really enjoyed that. That was, uh, was really fascinating. So 2017, you get the call to come back to Palace. Um, did it feel like a sort of homecoming in a way that this circle is complete from, from your youth that now you're back as manager at Palace? I've had that question quite a few times, of course, Jim, but I really don't know. I mean, I suppose to some extent I'd had so many jobs and travelled so much. I think that would only really have been the case had I never set foot outside of England during that time. I think it would have been a, a much bigger feeling there wasn't a very warm feeling. It was, it was very nice to have that suggestion that this is a homecoming and now you've, you've, you've turned a circle. So I don't want to dismiss that idea, but I'm probably 
would be exaggerating if I thought, yeah, you know, that suddenly everything slotted into place for me. Um, I saw it as a very good job to have if they wanted me. Um, I saw it as a big challenge because that particular year had started so so poorly and I didn't help because, you know, uh, De Boer had lost the first four games and I lost the next three. So, I mean, they were quite <laughs> tough ones. They were tough ones. Manchester ones, yeah. But, yeah. So... We took on a tough challenge, but it was a challenge which I was really keen and happy to take on and really pleased that, you know, Steve decided to, to, to go with me. Um, and then, of course, when you're there, then that's, I suppose, when the memories start flooding back because on the way to, the, on the way to Beckenham, where I passed my mother and father's house every day and then on the way home sometimes passed the house where I was brought up and all the places around that were so familiar. And that was quite quite a sort of nostalgic element. But I've got to say that for me, being a, a manager and having the responsibility of managing a football club in the Premier Division, nothing else really can get in the way of that or, or, or you, you can't really look beyond that or take comfort in other aspects. It really is, quite simply, how are we going to prepare the next game? Um, what players have I got available? Are we going to win the game? If we don't win it, what's the next step? And all of those things. So really, whether you're at a club that you love to be at and have got some sort of feeling for mm. because it's the club of your boyhood or whether it's somewhere in Switzerland or in, in, in Italy or uh, somewhere else, I think that that's what is the overriding factor at all times. You You obviously knew you were coming into a difficult situation even though it's so early in the season but was there a moment on the coaching field or on the playing pitch where you thought actually this is starting to click because for us it was the the Chelsea game yeah mm. when that performance I wouldn't say it came out of nowhere but that performance in both halves was of a level that we hadn't seen at Tellers yeah. Park for quite some time against a very very yeah. good yeah Chelsea team yeah well I think both Ray and I had a lot of confidence in our coaching ability um, what we didn't know is whether or not that was going to be taken on board by the players or whether they, you know, not all players are, are keen on being coached. Not all players are that keen on having a very structured footballing environment. Some players are much happier if, you know, they're allowed to think that I know what I'm doing, I'm a good player, I don't need to be told and coached and drilled into playing a certain way. That's what we didn't know how, how our approach, which had been pretty successful, you know, up to... I mean, not with England, I suppose, although having said that, the, the England was tournaments, it wasn't the rest of it. You know, only lo I lost six games in 57, so we weren't losing <laughs> yeah, every week, you know. But, I mean, we knew, I think, Ray and I, that, well, if, if, if this group of players seem a decent, a decent bunch, you know, you know want, to, want to get on board with us, really, you know, we, we, we'll lead, we'll show you what we want, we'll... We'll work at it and we'll hopefully put something before you that we think can work and will help us survive. Are you going to jump on board with it? And, of course, that always, that always involves jettisoning one or two players along the way that you realise are never going to get on board. We didn't have to do much of that, really, but one or two of the older ones um, had to sort of move aside a bit. But that was OK because they... I mean, we had a player called Damien Delaney, who was an absolute top, and, and Julian Speroni. They, they accepted that I'm a legend in this club, but maybe 
I'm not going to get so many games now. But they were actually quite important, people like him, in getting on board with the younger ones and, and, and bringing us all together. So I think we were... I've used the word pragmatic before, but I think we were realistic. I think we, we realised that it's going to be a fight, but we've got a dog in this fight. And if this dog can be you know, trained well enough and, and it is willing enough to stay with us, we're not out of it by any stretch of the imagination. And in actual fact, we the club had signed some quite good players mm. at that time who hadn't succeeded that well. I mean, the, uh, Loftus-Cheek and Kabai come, yeah. to, come oh, to mind, yeah. you know, quality midfield players. If we can, you know, suck out all of their quality. Uh, and, of course, you have Wilf Zaha. I mean, you know, no, no podcast you're ever going to be able to do or talk about if we're talking about this latter period that I can relate to. Can't be without Wilf Zaha because... He did take on enormous burden in, in getting us goals. That's the, that's the bottom line because we didn't have a lot of those. And in fact, I can probably say that you know during my time at the club, that's not something I've been blessed with having a lot of goal scorers. Um, but the the players did well; they got on board, and of course we were successful. It was quite a good. We ended up tenth, didn't we? I think yeah, we, yeah, we were pretty yeah. high in the table. Playing some really good football. Yeah. yeah. So was Wilf before you even went to the club? Was Will somebody you had identified as somebody who would be a leader on the training ground for you? I wouldn't say that Will was a leader on the training ground. I mean, I think Will was a leader on when he got onto the field of play right. because he's he's a footballer. He wants yeah. to play. You know, the thing about Will is he he didn't get injured very often. He didn't yeah. miss training sessions. Right. He could be he could be a nuisance in the training sessions because he was moaning at the others or <laughs> unhappy that people didn't reach Will. his quality all the time. <laughs> but. We, we had other leaders. Uh, we were very lucky there to have, to, to have other leaders, in, in particular uh, MacArthur and Milivojevic. They, yeah, they, 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 they were good leaders in the team. Ward, of course, has always been there. So we had those sort of players who I think were, were really good players, but also very good, solid citizens who accepted the responsibility, accepted that we've got to get behind these two if we're going to go anywhere. So let's go all in. And it wasn't difficult to, to, to drag Wilf along. If you'd have said to Wilf, are you enjoying these training sessions? He'd have said no. <laughs> because, you know, he really wanted to do the type of training session that he liked to do. But luckily, the others tempered any real criticisms he might have had. And as a result, he, he got on with it and... Yeah. and and, and did well, but he he was a very important factor. Um, it's amazing and, how fit he stayed, considering the punishment oh, he yeah. got on, yeah, yeah, on the yeah, pitch. Yeah, Paddy McCarthy said to me the other day, which I thought was quite relevant. I mean, I, I suppose I have thought of it before, but he brought it home to me very, very clearly. He said, he said the bravest people on a football field are the forwards. He said, because we kick them, but they don't kick us. Yeah. yeah. Where, where does where does Will Frank in terms of the players you've coached down the years? Because to a lot of Palace fans, he's, he's probably Palace's best ever player that they've seen play. Yeah, I, I would think that's probably true, isn't it? For what he did, I mean, for so long. I think if you're going to talk about someone being the club's best ever player, be like we've now seen with Sir Bobby Charlton, you've got to have some sort of sort of a background. Yeah. You've got to have some sort yeah. of longevity. Yeah. You can't say, well, he was great. He was a wonderful player. He was only with us a year and a half, but what a wonderful yeah. player. I think anyone who comes into that category, Crystal Palace, best ever player, you've got to talk Kemba, you've got to yeah. talk Cannon, you, you've got to talk... Uh, Ian Wright. Ian Wright, maybe, yeah. Pete yeah. Taylor. Pe yeah. People like that, yeah. they're, the, they're yeah. the people who come yeah. into it. And I think 
where Wilf would score largely over many, he did it in the Premier League. Yeah. You know, don't forget Crystal Palace haven't always been in the Premier League. We yeah. sometimes forget that. This is 12 years and we're in danger, yeah. I fear, of taking a little bit for granted. But, I mean, that's not the Crystal Palace I grew up supporting. No. No, no not none of us does, I think. What is it like supporting a club? I know you said before about that... The, um, Everything around preparing for the games comes first, but when it is a club that you support mm. and that you have a connection to, what, what is that like? Maybe on a ma- does it add something to a match day? Or do you know? I think I think that's really more a question for for you guys, really. I mean, I, I think that my admiration is is really for people who have followed the club through thick and thin, and you know, really base their lives to some extent around that. I mean, I'm sitting next to Steve Broward, who alongside with Steve Parrish actually maybe saved this club, you know, saved this club mm. even from going under, let alone not playing premiership football. And I think it's, it's you people really who are the lifeblood. I think we that work in it and we that, you know, see it as our daily bread, our, our job, our, our passion, I think sometimes it's harder for us to, to get that feeling that a true fan has, or a true supporter. I actually prefer the word supporter to fans. I really do. I've said this on many occasions. I think what we need from people, really, is a bit of support. We all want to win. (laughs) There's no one more gutted Mm. after a defeat than players. And, you know, if if fans ever think, what does it mean to a, a football team to lose a game, then... I'd invite them into our dressing room sometimes after a defeat, especially a, a harsh one like mm. we had to suffer on Saturday. And you know they, they they will see they will see people, <coughs> pardon me, crushed almost by it. And furthermore, not just for a few hours, crushed for days. Paddy McCarthy said to me today, you know, seeing you and Ray at the moment. Is this what I've got to look forward to? I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm expecting it to get better. You know, it does not get better with the years. It doesn't. I that's, know. that's the problem. My 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 wife said to me recently, she knows I'm getting mellow because I'll stop sulking by Tuesday. Yeah, well, that's because <laughs> that, 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 Sundays are ruined for me. No, well, I don't buy it. the papers. I don't watch. No, no. I don't watch match of the day. That's exactly it, Kevin. That's exactly where it is, and I think that the supporters, that's the way they're going to feel too. But like us, to some extent, we have to learn to live with it because you have to develop the character somehow to survive it, because otherwise you'll just go through your life moaning, complaining, wishing. You know, there's, there's got to be a certain level of realism as well. That, that's the important factor. And I think sometimes the way fans are encouraged to react today, they're being drawn away from the reality of their situation. Mm. You know, you know the big question for me, for Crystal Palace fans was, how important for you is it to watch Premier Premier League football? How, how important is that? Or do you just want to see a team win? Because if you just want to see the team win, then don't be upset when we get relegated because we win a lot of games when we get relegated. You know? yeah. But if you want to see Premiership football, I'm afraid you've got to accept that with our resources, where we are, you know, we we don't spend a billion pounds on on, on football players. You know, we we have to compete with these people, and I think we compete with them pretty well on on you know for the best part. And we need your support there for that because this club means something to you, as it should do, because it's, a, it's not just a bone of fire day, top-class football club. It's a club with, with a really good history, mm. a history of hardship, 
a history of, you know, ups and downs, a history of, you know, it's not always, you know, everyone's a you know, these days, everyone's a Man United, Liverpool, Arsenal, Chelsea supporter. That wasn't, in the 1950s, I don't remember many Chelsea supporters, I don't remember many Liverpool supporters, because they weren't winning every week. You know, so that's, that's what I would say. And I think that for supporters, um, that feeling that they get as a group together is something that we, to some extent, in the middle of it, are going to miss. We don't yeah. get it in quite the same way. We get what's going on, of course we do. We get that with bells on. <laughs> but we don't get necessarily the, the feeling because the feeling for us is, is, is a bit... The dagger going into the heart is a little bit harder when you're coaching and playing yeah, yeah. than if you're going home afterwards just moaning, why the hell didn't we do this and how the hell can he play X? Well, I, I think it's a generational thing for some Palace fans as well because you've got... A lot of younger Palace fans have grown up only knowing, yeah, sure. only knowing Premier the Premier League. League. Sure. Yeah. So sure. you get fans like the same situation that happened to Charlton. You get people going, well, why aren't we spending money we haven't got to get into the Europa League? And then you do that and you risk ending well, up where Charlton end up. Or, well, or Portsmouth. Or Portsmouth. Yeah. Or, or many others. Yeah. Who, yeah. who are another example. Of, well, <coughs> even more example of a team that spent money didn't have. And, can I ask you, Roy, because we shouldn't really get into politics and economics of football, although there is a book out I can recommend. What was it like, um, what was the match day experience like during lockdown? How, how different and uncomfortable was it? And was it yeah. only during lockdown that you realised quite how chatty Ray Lewington could be? <laughs> no, Ray's got a deep voice. He's, he, he, he's, to be fair, he, but even the level of his voice doesn't, help a great deal when people are playing because yeah. you don't you can only get so far with that voice but it was I think surreal I suppose is partly the word but it, I didn't like the experience it, it didn't you missed the match day experience you miss fans you miss mm. you miss the atmosphere you miss the ooze and the ahs you miss, you miss the excitement and the, or, or the or the the tension that comes in it uh, and it became a little bit more like playing a match amongst yourselves on the training field. So I didn't enjoy it at all, I must say. It was a, I mean, again, it was a survival thing for us. So well, I, I actually went, went to the games because they, yeah. they allowed the owners and directors oh, in. Of course, what was that like? It was awful. It was, <laughs> it was so weird. Um, you know, as Roy says, it didn't, it didn't feel like a proper game, even though you know this is a Premier League game and it, and it counts and there's three points at stake. It just, football without fans is just... Nothing. Uh, well, is, were they still doing catering and stuff then in the boardroom? That or uh, yeah, a sandwich yeah. in a in, in a paper bag. <laughs> yeah, it was like yeah, it was all. <laughs> no, I, I, oh no, there was no wine involved. Cause that, cause definitely I, I, not. I can't remember which. I think it was Leicester over Christmas. Well, I was so I was missing it so much. I walked. I got as close to the homestead as I could, without breaking any cordons, just to to hear the noise of a ball being kicked. It's strange. But, Very interesting. But tell us about interesting. your relationship with Ray, because everyone... I mean, you've been together a long time. And yeah, he's, well, he's since a, 2008. Yeah, and he's mean, a, he seems an immensely popular figure around the club. So how yeah. does your relationship... Do, do you sit down on a Monday and go, right, this is how it's going to work, or has it just become sort of natural and organic between Oh, you? no, we still talk. I mean, now, of course, Paddy's involved. I've been very lucky, really, not just with Ray, but... First with Stephen Reid, then with Dave yeah. Reddington, and now with Paddy McCarthy, excellent younger coaches, which are a great help to us as well. I mean, and I've got to say that both Ray and I, over the years, we've handed over more responsibility to, okay. certainly to Dave when he was there, and now Paddy, 
uh, which they seem very happy to take on. And to some extent, you know, we're taking something of a, a step back, um, although we are still both, you know, very much involved in the daily coaching. Um, but they, I, 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 funny enough, I, I, I passed him on his prelim badge many years ago when he was playing at Chelsea. When oh, I say I passed him, I was sent in as, as the examiner, the the person who'd taken the course at Chelsea. Dave Sexton, with his incredible foresight, got the younger players to take a prelim badge at the time, which was a course of about 12 sessions, I think. And they had a coach assigned to them who did those sessions. And then I got sent in um, on the examination day. And our job, basically, was to... Um, rubber stamp, if you like, the coach's assessment. You know, so when the coach has said, this guy's done the course, I think he's good enough, I think you should get the badge. We went in, it was an FA thing, I suppose, to make certain that people weren't being given badges just yeah. because they were, you know, mates of the guy taking sure, the course. Sure. So far enough, uh, I remember both Ray and, 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 and uh, Ray Wilkins on that course. So I had, and I also took him with the London schools. He, he was in a London schools team that I coached at Barn Elms, um, as when he was about 14, 15, 16. Yeah. Wow. So I knew of him, I knew his name. I'd come across him again, of course, when I, when I uh, went to Blackburn Rovers and he was, you know, back at the Palace. And then when I went to Fulham in 2008, he was there. He'd actually just been moved back up again by, by, by Sanchez uh, before I came. Before that, he'd been basically with the academy for a while. And, of course, I, I made certain that he, he stayed with me and Mike Kelly, and that's when we started to work together, the three of us, and that's that's continued, really, in all the jobs we've had. I, I, I used to love watching Ray Wilkins play. He's just... It, it just always seems to have a yard of space around him. Yeah, Wilkins, uh, well, yeah, but he's Wilkins wonderful was a class-class yeah. player. But Ray Lewington was a very good player, too. He was, and, yeah. uh, So... He's very popular in within the club because of his personality and because of his coaching ability, his, his, his tactical knowledge. So I think that for me, um, I find having him working with me is, is of vital importance and the same with Paddy, really, because it would take a lot out of me if I didn't have them taking over such a lot of the work that they take over, not least of all uh, with the video scouting people, putting together the the videos that we show in our post-match and pre-match preparation. That is hours and hours of work they put in before we can put it before the players and I'm very grateful for the work they do there. And and what is the deal with Ray Lewington wearing shorts all the time? <laughs> no, I don't know. No, I, don't know. <laughs> I think that might go back to the go back to the, the, the old days. I'm trying to think of his name. Brian Birch was his name. There was a guy called Brian Birch who came to talk about people coming to Sweden or, or going abroad to further their careers and Brian Birch was a Busby babe. It sounds like I'm talking badly of him. I, I don't mean to. He died many years ago mm. and he was quite a nice fellow actually. But when I was at Harmstead in, I think it would have been about 76, 77, he came over uh, from whichever club he'd been at in England and he was a Busby babe. He had a, you know, quite a reputation. And he took over this team in the league below the league below the top league. Not far, funny enough, from where I was working. I went down to meet him one day there. But 
the story that they told me about him was really quite... I mean, the, I remember the first he said to me, the first he complained about was people being too obedient at traffic lights. <laughs> he, said, he, said, he, said, he said, they don't go, even though there's not a car to be seen, they, they still wait there. But the other thing that I remember, was it, it got cold in. This was, this was pre-season. I went down in a pre-season, so it had been a late January, early February, oh, that's training, training, training on <laughs> sand pitches. And um, the story goes that he actually went out there and his first day, dressed in shorts, of course, and just a sweatshirt. And he got all the players lined up. And they had hats and gloves and scarves <laughs> and tracksuit tops. And, kind of and he said, right, who are the goalkeepers? And a couple of guys put out, he said, right, you can come forward now, take your hat off, take your scarf off, take those tracksuit bombs off, but you can keep your gloves on. Now, the rest of you, I don't want to see any gloves, <laughs> no scarves, no hats, whatever. So, Swedes being Swedes, they, they, they actually did that. Yeah. But then two days later, he was in hospital with pneumonia. Oh, oh <laughs> my word. <laughs> so, that's the... Not no, the twist I was expecting. But, but, but it's, it's great. I mean, from our point of view, it's, it's, it's great to have somebody like yourself, who is a Palace fan, but also somebody like Paddy, who is a yeah, yeah. really good player for us as well, because football yeah. fans love, or supporters, as they what do, we yeah. say from that, they love continuity, of they course. love, in, you know. I think the club's, Kieran, I think the club tries hard to do that. Yeah. You know, what, 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 what the club has done with, you know, with Steve over these last few years in, in, in getting that academy up and running, I mean, that in itself oh, is yeah. an achievement. What we're doing now it's with, amazing, the, with, the, with yeah. the stadium, yeah. you know, you know, this, this club is moving forward all the time. You know, the, I think that supporters, at the end of the day, should be pleased that an extra few million pounds is being spent on the academy, in producing players, on coaches and on the stadium, rather than necessarily making a player that we only see for a few months that little bit richer. You know, it's a question of where you spend your money. And there's got to be an element of realism. You know, from the moment Ray and I came in in 2017... We realise that our job is to work with the players that are there, that the players can afford, and that we think want to be there. Try and get rid of the ones who don't want to be there, of course, but the ones who want to be there and the ones that the, the club say, this is what we can give you to work with, that's what you know we enjoy doing and are more than happy to do. Because once you, once you start talking... There was a time, it seems to me, where... You didn't talk so much about changing players all the time. Every time something didn't go quite right, let's get another one. In those five years in Harmstead, where we won the championship twice, on at least two of those occasions, the 76 team that won, the 79 team that won, we did it with 16 players. Yeah. And in the 79 team, there was still, I think, eight of the 11 who played the 76 team. Whereas now we always seem to be, well... Get something better, get something better, yeah. get something better. We'd all love to do that. But I think our supporters should look around and see, well, is it working all the time? Is it, is it, has it worked at Manchester United? Has it worked at Chelsea? Um, <laughs> no. <it's the> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no. The money that they've spent, they will yeah. particularly yeah. Chelsea. There's no guarantee. I, I mean, what? if you want an example of how not to do it um, and, the, and the opposite way that Palace have done it, then that's it. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, they've basically... Paid Brighton um, all the, um, I don't know what is it over two hundred million they they paid to Brighton yeah. Yeah. for a manager and, a, and two a or three players yeah. and and it didn't and it hasn't really 
I mean, that, maybe they, they are just starting to click, but it hasn't really like, and Mourinho, been good value for money, has it? In Jose Mourinho's career, a brilliant manager, but he's earned 110 million quid from payoffs, from being yeah. sacked. Because yeah. even managers of his quality don't get the time they should be given to rebuild a no, team. And the interesting thing with Chelsea, I think, for the, from a Palace perspective, is that, you know, Doug and I were keen to sign uh, Gallagher the year before you actually got him. He yeah. came when I left, but we were keen to sign him actually in the summer before I left. And now he's probably one of Chelsea's most yeah. important players. Yeah. And um, he plays every game, doesn't yeah. he? Plays he plays every game. Despite he's them buying the team. other people. Yeah. So the fact is, I think sometimes <laughs> if you've got a good guy like he obviously is and a good player like he is, you know, you might do well to try to suck out everything that he can give you before you then start going and buy someone else's stuff. Yeah, yeah, um, and putting a star team together doesn't always work. Unfortunately, it needs to be done in pieces. I think at the moment with Palace that there is a nucleus of really good quality Premiership players at the club. So the trick I think is going to be now, and I'm, I'm, I'm speaking personally, but I'm pretty certain if you have Steve Parish on here, he'll be saying very much the same thing as I'm saying. The trick is to sort of build upon that now by bringing in one or two more pieces, which could make us a bit better. But maybe the most important thing of all is what the club succeeded in doing this year, keeping two of them. Yeah. yeah. about Eze because um, he's getting him time down for contract is, is huge news and he's yeah. he's such a wonderful player to watch for the fans he's, he, mm. he glides across the pitch but obviously when you came back last season he was struggling for form is there something that you do with players like that to try and reignite their form well I think sometimes if players are going through a bad spell and we had it with Sterling when he came in 2016 he'd not been playing at Man City he'd been being left out and he was really quite low and uh, you know, we, all we did in the, in the build-up to it was to try and encourage him that, listen, you know, we like what you do and we, you know, we're going to encourage you to do what you do. We're not going to put restrictions upon you. So it's up to you really now. And it's a little bit like that with Ed, Ed, Ed as well in a way that, you know, he, he was in and out of the team. He was losing a bit of confidence and we made it clear to him, well, look, we, we like what you do, you know, we... We think we can really use you. you now it's up to you. We're going to give you the chance to play, work in training, and make certain you understand fully what we do want from you. But all the time you're giving us what we want from you, we're right behind you. And we knew, of course, that if we could get that, it wouldn't take long for the fans to get behind him because mm. you know he, he's got qualities. You know he's got exceptional quality. He is a he is a a high quality Premiership player who could play in. Many, many teams in the Premiership. So, because so, I often think fans and people in football forget that players are people sometimes. There's as much as managing yeah. the emotional mm. side of it yeah. rather than stuff on the training ground. Well, I think it's a very important point, Jim. The game is not played on, on, a, on a magnetic board. Um, and it is, unfortunately, when you're, when you're coaching, much as though we can get very irritated when people aren't doing exactly what we think they perhaps should be doing and we certainly they wouldn't do if we were showing them on the magnetic mm. board or on the training field 
this is what you've got to do. They are human beings, and human beings make mistakes. And one of our mantras has been that we don't mind mistakes. We don't mind honest mistakes. We don't, you know, if we're telling you that in this situation we want you to run at a defender with the ball, if you run at him at the wrong time and lose it, we're not going to criticise you for that. Now, we might criticise you if in those situations you keep passing the ball backwards because that's not what we want to do. So we're behind you in doing what we all agree, i.e. you and us, that we agree is the right thing to do. And in doing that, you're going to make mistakes. Mm. We'll forgive them. And what you've got to learn to do is when you made a mistake, work hard to recover it because recoveries are one of the most important aspects. And, you know, that's something <clears throat> that I like our fans to think about sometimes. You know, that when they see a player losing a ball or, or, or running with the ball and not doing what we would like to see, ask yourself the next question, well, what's, what's he like after it? What's, what's his next move be? Because that's what we're always looking at. Mm. What's the next move? We don't, we don't mind you losing it, but we will if you stand there and look behind you and expect someone else to help out and get you the ball back. Mm. That's, that's got to be love at your responsibility. And recovery runs are so important. And if we take that game uh, against uh, Burnley recently, there were some really incredible recovery runs from players, you know, 40, 50-metre sprints to get back behind the ball after we'd lost it up at the other end. And they're, But they're the things which, unfortunately, don't get pointed out necessarily to supporters. Mm. You know, at the weekend, it's all about... <laughs> they, they don't, they don't, for me, often mention the salient points. The, the, the Man City goal, where the turn of on the halfway line from, um, <coughs> pardon me, Haaland, no one points out, what's the, what's the, what's the, what's the midfield player doing there? Mm. What on earth has prompted the midfield player to think he can win that ball in front? But well done, Haaland. But then the pass to, ha to Alvarez, and Alvarez's unbelievable quality of pass to play in whoever it was, Foden, was it, on, on yeah, that side? Yeah. But not just that. What about the overlap run? Mm. So he's, he's, he's had to run forward. He's had to make a long run forward when Haaland's turned. So he'd made a good 20-metre sprint forward, got the ball. At the sign of the first pressure, he's played it uh, really through the eye of a needle, if you like, to Foden, who's controlled it. And then as Foden's controlled it and looked to move inside... He's actually made a long, another 25-metre sprint to get behind him. And then, on top of that, when he gets there, he produces a really good quality cross. Mm. Now, they're the type of things I would like to point out to. They're not just, you know, the tapping at the back post. It's, mm. it's all of those things, really. We, we deliberately didn't want to talk about individual players because we'd be here all day, but Jordan Ayew, he's got to be the best two million quid the club's ever spent, isn't he? You know, he's such a good character, that's the thing. Mm -hmm. he, he just loves football, he just loves playing. He's, got, he, he, he's a very tough character. Yeah. Well, he's tough mentally and he's tough physically. Um, I think he's getting better and has got a lot better over the last five or six years in terms of realising what he's best at and what he's not quite so good at. Um, but character plays a big part. And the one thing I would say, certainly, if I think back to these five years or so I've had at Palace now, there's been a lot of very good characters here, a lot of extremely good characters. I'll give 
story one, Delaney. What a good character yeah, he was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. James McCarthy. McCarthy, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, there's been so many, you know, and, and even guys, forgotten guys, Martin Kelly. Yeah. yeah. You know, the number of times I put him in at right back, coming into the team and no one regarded him. Ward. I mean, the, these people really should get more credit, I think, because character plays a part. There's no, there's no doubt. The, it's the, the old adage you get. Well, it's not an adage, really. It's the... If any leaders' books you care to read from any sports, in particular maybe the the American ones, they are all one hundred percent in agreement that 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 talent may get you so far in the game, but it's character that's going to keep you there, yeah. and that's something we sometimes don't take into enough consideration. I'm afraid it's been a running joke on the pod for the last ten years. My annual Christmas apology to Joel Ward. <laughs> I start every season by saying. Probably time for Joel to move on now. And then at Christmas I go, he's still a really good Premier League player, yeah, isn't he? Incredible. It's, it's happened every season. So I think he's one yeah. of those players that none of us expected. No. We all hoped that he would get a few games in the Premier League for his sake, but yeah. he's yeah. just been he's a, done amazing. a brilliant yeah. There's brilliant a few of them, isn't there? Yeah. You know, they, we, we're, we're blessed in that respect. Yeah. And I think it's something that if we're not careful, all of us, and, and I take myself and my coaching staff into this equation as well, if we're not careful... Our desire to keep getting better, to keep keep doing more, heaping pressure to some extent on the players to give us more, mm. maybe some give us sometimes more than maybe they're capable of giving. We're in danger of, of ruining um, a lot of what this club has become. I think rather than not not if I can say it, always being you, you guys would know better than me. But certainly what this club has become, it's a very, it's a place for people who are serious about the game, who are prepared to really roll their sleeves up and put in a shift in the game. And if then, of course, we can get those players with the quality of the Ezzies and the, yeah. the Gays and, and the Andersons and the Elisa's, then if we can get that alongside that quality, then, of course, there's no, no limit. But I just urge the fans still to, you know, disen- disenchant themselves from the idea that suddenly, from one year to the next, Crystal Palace are going to spend £200 million on players, which I can't see happening mm. in the near future. And more importantly, you know, be careful where that £200 million goes. And I had money to spend at Blackburn Rovers. Jack, Jack Walker, we had a very good first season. We got into Europe. They, they'd almost got relegated the year before I came and went there. We got into Europe, you know. Everything was fantastic. I was being touted for the England job. Yeah. Everything was magnificent. And Jack was, was desperate to sign players because he had so much money in the bank. But you know what the problem was? Any of the good players I recognised didn't want to come. Oh. <laughs> because they were an unfashionable club. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, when, and we were offering them European football. So that's another aspect, you know. You know, there's no guarantee that if St- St- Steve Parrish says to me or the next manager, there's two hundred million pounds to spend, go and buy four fifty million pound players. It's not certain we're going to get those four fifty yeah. million pounds. Yeah. And the next thing is, is one of those fifty million pound players going to be like one of those fifty, seventy, eighty million, hundred million pound players that we're currently seeing at Man United and uh, yeah. Chelsea? And you might be thinking about. What a pity we let Jordan Ayew go. 
But fans are every because fans say, "Well, we need we need a twenty-five goal a season striker." But oh, yeah, but every club in the Premier League, is every, like, league. Like, <laughs> every club. Is, so if one yeah, comes yeah, available, yeah. we're yeah. way down the pecking order yeah. for, for to sign them. Well, I think that that I think to be fair, we should have been way down the pecking order to sign one or two we've already got. If the truth, yeah. yeah. So I don't I don't discount that that's a possibility. The major problem there is finding that person. <laughs> yeah, and every. You know, there's not there's not a team really outside of the top three or four in the country, and and I count Chelsea and Man United almost in this category. Who aren't saying, if only we had that striker, if yeah, only yeah, and yeah. if only Van Nistelrooy was still with us, or yeah, only if Ian yeah. Wright was still here, we're always going to be saying that, and that's why the job of a Doug Friedman becomes more important every year, because we can't we can't do what some of these other clubs can do. We can look around and say, well, look, Brighton are below us. Palace are below us, Fulham are below us. Who are their best players? Well, they want a lot of money for them, but we'll take them. Yeah? When are we going to be able to do that? I don't think. Yeah. Unless someone puts that enormous treasure chest forward. Yeah. So we've got to find a gay, a Chelsea loney playing at Swansea and doing well. We've got to find a Gallagher at Charlton and then Swansea playing well. We've got to take a, a chance on Anderson, you know, who's been relegated with, with Fulham, but we still like the look of him. Yeah. 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 We got that, that's what I think we've got to do. And I think Doug's done an outstandingly good job in that respect. And that's how it's going to have to be if we're going to move forward, as I believe this club is going to move forward. R- Roy, it's been, it's been such a pleasure having you on and, and listening to you talk about the game. If you ever thought about starting a football podcast, I would definitely <laughs> listen and subscribe. It's been a pleasure. I'm just going to round off with one more question, if possible, because we got asked by the Seaman Says podcast, which is David Seaman's podcast, for a question for Sam Johnson. He was a guest recently. And so we said, what's it like playing for Roy Hodgson? And he really eulogised, very long question about, about playing for you. But I picked out this bit in particular, and I'll drop in the audio for our listeners. I played at the back end of last season after not playing so much. And then I got into, back into the England squad in the summer. And he was, like so, he, he was just so proud of, like, you know, he's been the England manager. And he was, mm. it was literally like he was a family member of how proud yeah. he was of, of oh, not just me, but all three of us, me, yeah. Mark Wyatt and... Eze got in the squad and he was like, you know, asking when we come back, how was it? How long was you at St. George's? Where did you move on to? What did you do? Like really, really interested in what we'd done. And as soon as you come back, he's got a smile on his face. And the first thing he asks you is, how was it? How was it at St. George's? That's great to know that he's still got that passion for England, that. Yeah, 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 he does. He literally does. He was so happy and proud to... For you to want to go and then secondly to know what you got up to when you was there, how was it and this, that and the other, asking, <laughs> you know, um, different things and stuff. So, yeah, he, he, he's, he's literally just a, a, a great person. Do you feel that pride then when, when yeah, young did, players yeah. get called up? Yeah, I do. I mean, uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of international football, of course, because international football has been good to me, starting with Switzerland and, and then with Finland and England. The UAE, slightly different, that was like a a hiatus to some extent in a long career, but the other three, they've all been wonderful experiences where I've, you know, worked with good people, worked with very good players and, you know, learnt a lot, of course. So when a player gets picked for his national team, I think that's always a red-letter day. And if it's England, you know, being English and having worked with England, perhaps slightly more so. And I'm always pleased to see people get there from clubs like ours because, 
you know, we have to accept. We're not we're not the first uh, spot on Match of the Day that often. You know, we, we aren't Sky Sports' first choice always to, to be on TV because that's reserved for United, Liverpool, Chelsea, mm. Arsenal, etc., etc. We have to accept that. It's the same in every country. If you're working in Spain... You've got to accept that most most things are going to veer towards Barcelona, Valencia, and, and Real Madrid. If you're in Germany, buying me, you be on the television virtually every week, and you might get a little look in every now and again as Bayer Leverkusen. Mm. You've got to accept those things. But having said all of those things, it, I think it's quite amazing that we, as a football club, and we're not alone. I, I, I put other clubs in the category, can compete as well as we do in what has become a very uneven playing field because so many teams above us are able to go out and scour Europe and scour the continent and scour Africa for the the best players. So, you know, there's no prizes for working out that Shobaloshai is is a good player. You know, know, you'd have to be living in another planet if you were looking for a midfield player and you hadn't thought about Shobaloshai, you'd be living in another planet. But the fact is only certain clubs could get that player. So we have to accept to work hard with the ones we got to try and reach to get them to reach the best level they can be and compete, you know, at an equal level with these players. And I think that's what Palace have done for a number of years. I think it's what Palace will continue to do. And uh, I'm very, uh, what's the right word here? I find it very praiseworthy that you have this podcast which has been going for 500 editions and for so many years, what, 2008, you said, that's mm-hmm. almost 16 years, and you're, you're prepared to get round a table once or twice a week and provide for the fans some sort of insight into your Crystal Palace. Because a football club is a fans' club. It is. But fans can enrich that club and send it forward and keep it going, keep the lifeblood going. But fans on 40 also can suck mm. the blood out of clubs. And you've mentioned two or three already early on in the podcast where that's definitely happened, where, yeah. where the, the heart and the desire and the, the burning ambition has not been linked to what the club is capable of achieving. Now, I don't think that's the case with us at all, but certainly... The work you do is very useful, I think, in that respect, in you know, putting, putting a, a sane point of view forward at a time when sometimes sanity is hard to find because football is emotional. Mm. I think you said that, Kevin, early on. And when you're emotional, you don't think with your head. You don't have vision. You don't have perspective. You just want to change. For example, after the game on Saturday, I wanted to hurt someone. I hurt myself. <laughs> <laughs> but you end up hurting yourself. Yeah, yeah, of course. Roy, thank you so much. And um, well, I'm definitely going to use the quote, a, a sane podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Put that on our posters. Please it's, do. It's been such a joy having you on. Thank you for joining us for our 500th podcast. We, uh, we really appreciate it. And all the best for the rest of the season. No, thank you very much, Jim.
Well, there you go, Roy Hodgson, on the 500th episode of the FYP podcast, sponsored by our friends at Eternity Home Finance. Email info at eternityhomefinance.com. And for a free consultation, quote the code FYP. So a huge thank you to Roy for his time. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you to everyone at the club that helped sort that out as well. Uh, thank you to our listeners. Thank you to you guys for being here. Kevin, that was... I mean, that was incredible, wasn't it? Well, it was, yeah, it was a pleasure. I mean, it was a privilege as well. But I, I also think we need to be thanking all the people that have listened to this pod right from the very start. You've, you've grown it from a, a tiny little acorn into, a, into a, you know, a, a must-listen for most Palace fans. And also, you have to thank those Palace fans who have sent in some of the funniest questions. <laughs> We've had, that's some of the reasons I've had so much laughter. Well, they kept spot. us going, didn't they? They kept us going a lot, for, for a long time. Yeah. But um, it's, it's, I'd say it's been a pleasure and a privilege to do. And, and there are too many people to name that by, you know, it, well, by name. Yeah. Damn. Well, I, was we trying was... to be, I was trying to be more erudite there. But we, we'd be here all night again if, if we mentioned everybody that's been involved with the pod. But, you know, it's... It's the people listening to it week in, week yeah. out that are the most... And, and you know what's nice, Rob, as well, and I know you get this at games as well, is, is often I get people come up to me at, at, at Palace Games and just being incredibly kind and nice about the podcast. And I think you forget sometimes when you're putting it out each week and Palace have lost or whatever and you're sort of trying to get an hour's chat out of it. The, the People are really thankful for it. And it's just it's very nice. Every time people say nice things about the pod in person, it's, it's always appreciated. Well, that's because they don't know how arrogant you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, they will now. That's because they weren't there at the time when you first heard somebody walked past and somebody said, that sounds like that bloke from the pod. <laughs> yeah. And you couldn't stop talking about it. And the best thing about that was Andy Street was next to me and he had no <laughs> idea who he was, yeah. which was great. I, I, I think it's um, it, it's just a, a mark of the, the work that you guys have done. And, and I say you guys. I, I do the post-match podcast and I get lots of people come up to me and say thank you for that. But I think the, the regular... It is hard work. Honestly, there are times after watching Crystal Palace lose where, you know, either logging on to a Zoom call or, you know, going to someone's house in the wet and the rain, which Kevin loves, obviously. Um, He's the one sitting there waiting for for you to arrive in the warm. Um, It is hard. It is like, oh, do we have to talk about that? But actually, after talking about the Palace match, I tend to find that that draws the line under it, you know. And, And very often I listen to... When I want to, when Palace win, I want to, I want to enjoy that high a bit more, and the podcast yeah, yeah. really helps me with it. And and when I, when we lose, it's great to listen to, to just understand that actually what I witnessed wasn't wasn't wrong, or yeah. that maybe I was wrong, and that I needed to review what I thought. Um, but it is, it's just such a, it's, I, I can't say it enough. I mean, JD and Andy, and and you know, you Kevin as well. You've been such cornerstones of this this existence when it comes to the FYP podcast. You really do deserve it. Adding that, thank, that's very kind of adding that to the poster alongside Roy Corner, yeah, like a sane yeah. voice <laughs> in a sea of whatever it was, which was lovely. Um, I think we should wrap up there. Thank you to everyone um, who's supported us along the way. Uh, thank you to Steve, you know, for constantly being helping us do these fantastic interviews and being a real support along the years, Steve. Yes. So thank you. And of course, for saving the club, you know, probably. <laughs> yeah. Big thanks yeah. for that as well. Oh, that's, yeah, that. There someone had to do it. I knew there was something. Yeah. <laughs> really appreciate it. Thanks to everybody that's listened, our patrons, all our people behind the scenes, hosts, too and, many people to thank. And also Palace for existing yeah. and oh, for, yeah. being, for, for being the, yeah. the lifeblood of our entertainment, even when it goes wrong sometimes. It's just, we wouldn't be able to talk about anything else. That's what we are. That's what we're doing. Beautifully put, Rob. Uh, so thank you very much to Roy for joining us. Thanks to everyone for listening. 
here's to the next 500. Uh, thanks very much. Bye-bye.